Psycho 78. 12 o'clock. Don't be late. I said all that. Greetings and salutations. My name is Justin Lore. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you are listening to the 37th episode? 37th, sounds 37th good. episode of Hard Business. <laughs> and today we Just have. It. Confidence wins. We have a great, tremendous episode in store for you guys. Uh, we are joined by John the Lit Crick Guy. Is that okay? Uh, hello. Is that okay to say John the Lit Crick Guy or just say the Lit Crick Guy? I can edit this. No, John way. John is fine. That's totally cool. Cool, 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 cool. Cool, cool yeah. How you doing, John? Uh, it's so, so, so good. It's so nice of you to have me on. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, here's, here's the thing, John. I mean, first of all, this, this bumps our game up. It does. <laughs> we, you're our first international guest. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you gotta get you gotta get the international market now, man. That's how it works. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Well, and especially because this is my this is this is my completely un based in no reality feeling, and that is that the um, the general European response to horror. Now I know right now is not a good time to refer to anyone from England as a European. Um, Damn. But I'm going to do it anyway. The European response to horror sometimes is a little bit more on the intellectual side, whereas Americans are a little bit more like, more blood, more tits. Yeah, I'm wearing an American (laughs) wearer from London shirt right now, so I'm definitely, I'm I'm intellectual. I'm I'm, I'm intellectual. It was actually completely incidental. God damn it. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, that's totally understandable because, right, we're, we're the ones who kind of created the, the 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 genre right we were writing the first horror stories before it went over to america and caused all of that moral panic yeah. <laughs> i mean to be fair that okay that's not really a fair thing because when y'all were writing the first <laughs> horror stories there were no one writing horror stories in america what kind of got a point oh my god <laughs> kind of got a point this Bram is just Stoker. some white people shit fuck you white people bram stoker <laughs> mary shelley no it's true and then in american horror who did H.P. Lovecraft worship? The English. <laughs> but that's because he was a racist. Hey, man. He, he, was a, he, was a, he was a tedious racist. Yeah. One of the worst. We, we actually sl- we, we tend to dunk on H.P. Lovecraft here, but I think that's partly because of Justin's love. You, your love for him is why you mock his horrifying racism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm allowed to. Yeah. And his, his all-round general weirdness, yes. right? Yes. The, the weirdness weird is dude. the positive. I'm okay with the weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with weird. It's the um, anti-Semitism that I'm not cool with. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so uh, today's, today's episode, we're going to be dealing with two films that are, uh, I, I, I suspect the former is definitely ingrained in the DNA of the latter. Those films are 1990s Jacob's Ladder and 2015's They Look Like People. Uh, the general theme is this vague, amorphous, what the fuck is going on, wide awake nightmare, if I can quote Slayer, sense of reality. Uh, if you've seen these movies, great. If you haven't, um, I, n- <laughs> I love how a few weeks ago we were like, yeah, we don't believe in spoiler culture. And literally every episode since then we've been like, spoiler alert. Like you might want to. We've done, well, we've done a couple of new episodes. We've done a couple of new movies, though. Yeah, but that's the whole, where the whole thing is. Th- this movie, uh, spoil Jacob's Ladder. Like, if you haven't seen Jacob's yeah, Ladder, fuck you. You've seen. Come on. If you haven't seen Jacob's Ladder, don't listen to this. I'm going to get there, but a lot of people have not. They're idiots. I'm not disagreeing. I'm sorry. With you. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, is it? It's not too soon, right? It's been out for nearly 20 years. Oh, let's, it's been out for almost just... 30 years now. At this point, 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, can I go ahead and do a? Can I? I have a different kind of spoiler alert. Oh, fine. Spoiler alert. 
I'm going to have a theory that these two films are simply uh, different answers to the same problem. Ooh. Interesting. I like that. Interesting. I think they really are coming from the same question, and then they answer it in two different ways. Okay. Uh, that's that's fun, because, uh, spoiler alert, I have a theory that these are two pretty radically different takes Ooh. on spoiler, an issue. Spoiler, I have a theory Ooh. that these are both movies that take place in The Matrix. And so, <laughs> Tim Robbins was in Shawshank Redemption with... No, I I'm not even going to go down there. <laughs> <laughs> I know somehow the number nine is involved. Yeah, That's like there's all these weird things. Uh, but before we go any further, before we talk about the, and all the fun stuff, we I, should say that... I want to do something real quick. Okay. Oh, you're going to talk to our sponsors. Do that first. Yeah. Uh, this episode like all of our episodes, is brought to you by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, the premier screen printing service of the Lehigh Valley. Now, Liam, or John, if you need, let's say you have a, um, John, I'm going to assume you're a, a, a football person. Liam's a football uh, person. American yeah, totally. football, yeah. Now, he's being very sarcastic. Yeah, I am. So, <laughs> Liam, I know you're a gigantic Philadelphia Eagles fan. Oh, my God, I bleed green. So, now that Randall Cunningham is back to go to the Super Bowl Finally, against the Randall fucking Cunningham. Patriots, yeah. if you needed a t-shirt that said something like, I hope Prince chokes on a cheesesteak because he's from Minnesota, where would you go for that t-shirt? I think what I actually want is a I fuck Tom Brady's wife shirt. Okay. <laughs> You didn't see that video? No. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a viral video of an Eagles fan who's like celebrating the win over the Minnesota and talking about defeating, and he just keeps saying, "I'm going to fuck your wife." Too is it Tom Brady is the the quarterback? Yeah. He just keeps saying, "We're going to beat you. I'm going to fuck your wife." He just keeps oh, saying it. Casual threats of rape from a Philadelphia fan. That's uh, I think the insinuation is not so much rape, but that. It's going to be so embarrassing that she's going to willingly leave with this Eagles fan. I hate the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> the point is, if the T-shirt said that, I might buy it. Where would the T-shirt come from? That's what I'm. That's what oh, we have Valley Apparel. We have Valley Apparel Creations. If you have an idea for something that you need to get printed, they will fucking take it from you. They will take it out of the realm of the platonic perfect form, and they will yeah. bring it into this imperfect realm of shape and scent. They will make it happen. They will help you through every step of the way. Let's say you are trying to convince, well, I don't know, your country yes. to like leave an agreement. You know, like you wow. have an agreement, like a trade agreement and other things, and you're trying to like leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, oh, like like we left the Paris uh, climate. Like the Paris Accords. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You need a shirt. You yeah. need a T-shirt to convince people. Yeah, we would need that. If we needed a T-shirt to show our support for a raging, incoherent shitbag that's oh, yeah, like a certain house on – it's white. It's a white house on, 69, <laughs> on Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue in D.C. We would get shirts made by Chris Reject. Yeah, of course. Lehigh Valley. Lehigh Valley why, why must we always we're all why must we always suggest that if you have a sketchy thing, you have to get it at Lehigh Valley and um, Creations? So, side note for those listening out there, this past Saturday, a week from a week ago today, I was at a party with the owner of this company, Chris Reject, Chris Reject, who got belligerently drunk and decided to text Liam in the middle of the night obscenities. A lot of us. We, we then spent the rest of the night yelling at people. Um, as the sober person, should I have maybe stepped in and not let him get that drunk? Absolutely. Was it funny? Yes. Would I let the same exact thing play out again? One hundred percent. Yes. 
The whole point is that <laughs> you should go to this screen printing company and you should get your shit made there. I don't, I see all my friends who have like these podcasts who I'm not going to name, but they're these girls. They're like the last girls. There's no other girls yeah. after them. And they have a podcast and I'm like, guys, get your t-shirt. I've never actually told them to do it, but I'm like, you should get your t-shirts done by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Well, there's a podcast that I enjoy. That I know our guest from across the pond, the pond. John enjoys. That uh, let's say I don't want to name check them, but let's say they reference a certain uh, section of scripture by Mary, and they're selling they're selling their shirts for like twenty five bucks on Etsy. If they had had them printed by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, they could be selling their shirts for fifteen dollars and have just the same amount of profit. And they would be like tailor made. They would be tailor. The hard business shirts we have, guys, they're soft. Because Chris was like, hey, you might want to get this, this certain kind of weave. And I was like, you would lead me down the wrong path 100%, but I trust you. And he, 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 he didn't lead me astray. Are we overcompensating because we said that they should make Trump shirts? Is that what's going on right now? No. No. Hey, it's not, like, you've sold me on this. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to have to get me some horror business merch. Yeah. So, so long story short, if, you, if, if for whatever reason your curiosity is piqued by our rambling, quote-unquote, endorsement of <laughs> Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, you can go to www.xlvacx.com. I have said it a thousand times, and I will say it until there is no more breath in my lungs. Chris Reject is not and never has been straight edge. He's not straight edge. Don't let the website He's a you. fucking poser. He thinks X's in his name make him sound edgy. He's he, whack. This was probably inspired by My Chemical Romance. Is my also, assumption. Chris Reject, not actually punk. So, Okay, that was a bridge too far. Yeah. So we're going to move on now. John. Have you seen or done anything recently horror-related? Uh, yeah, I mean, I should, I should probably introduce myself properly. Oh, yes. Uh, that's, what I was, that's what I was going to do, but Justin just steamrolls over our guests. I'm like a fucking, I'm like a, a, a something that steamrolls over things, some kind of steamroller. That's, that's I've heard of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name, is, my name is John. I go by the Liquor Guy on uh, Twitter and on the internet more widely. I, in my day job, I'm an academic and I research and teach on gothic and horror from the 1700s all the way up to the present. Um, so the last thing that I have been doing that is vaguely horror related has been a couple of weeks of lectures and seminars. I was uh, teaching uh, maybe one of my favorite sci-fi horror movies, which is uh, Alien. And it's just incredible because we get to screen it on an old cinema screen and it looks just amazing. And just this week, I was teaching Alex Garland's 2014 film Ex Machina. So two great bits of sci-fi horror has been my kind of film highlights of the last couple of weeks. Uh, the, the the screening of Alien, that was 35mm or was that like digital? Uh, it was digital. I would love oh, to do a 35mm cut, but... I mean, that's fine. I mean, I think for a class, I took a class in uh, seminary that was like a... Well, it was at the university, but I was I was in seminary. And it was a film class, and they did screen on film. And I remember thinking, that is a lot of money and work for just a class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, they just needed to see the thing. I didn't need to sort of... You know, they're not aficionados. They're not fans yet. Oh, yeah, exactly. Soon you will have them hooked and they will be obsessive. Yeah, that, that's a, you know, you start out with, you know, just the kind of good introduction and then you've got to keep get them coming back. So one of the reasons we asked you to come on the show 
was because of some of the research and the work that you do, which I heard about a little bit on the Magnificast and then a little bit on Revolutionary Left Radio. Uh, but do you want to tell our audience a little bit about how, why would why would a horror podcast maybe want you to come on? Oh, okay, yeah. So um, I've just finished my PhD on uh, 19th century uh, Gothic and horror literature. I teach pretty extensively on, on horror literature and film, and uh, I'm currently working on a couple of projects. One is turning the PhD into a book, which is what all good academics have to do to take their place. In you the, have to. That's yeah. required. I mean, it's the book that, you know, will maybe sit in a few libraries and nobody will read, and that's, you know, that's totally fine, and not a sign that academic publishing is horribly broken. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's, it's good and normal, guys. Um, and the other thing that I'm doing is I'm working on a project on um, Marxist approaches to Gothic and horror from around the 1850s all the way up to the present. Um, so the thing on Revolutionary Left Radio was talking about Gothic Marxism as a mode of political analysis, and it's a great way of kind of reading and responding to horror texts. That's really interesting, and I think that um, one of the things that we've been accused of on this show is over-intellectualizing every time we talk about a horror movie. Yeah, it's it's weird that I sometimes I've been accused of being like sort of an elitist prick, and I'm like, I hear the way I talk, and I'm like, there's no way. Yeah, there's been plenty of episodes where just like uh, this movie was shitty and the effects were dumb, but. Boy, am I the wrong guest for that problem. (laughs) (laughs) It's just weird that I, I, there have been these accusations that we are a little snooty in our, in our, in our analysis of some of these movies. Only to the extent that I hate people. Yeah. Only in the extent that because we, uh, look, we have a passion. Okay. And that passion, it burns everything it touches. And if it burns away people's intellect, that's not my problem. (laughs) No, that's true. And I think, look, I'm not here to coddle people. I think it's probably worth pointing out, right, that since about the 1760s, this kind of art form has been considered, like, trash. It's been considered, like, right. the, the lowest. And I actually oh, yeah. think it's it's probably worth spending a little bit of time. We've got, like, 300 years of people saying this is absolute rubbish. So w- there should be a little bit of effort put into actually going, you know what, this is just as valid, this is just as, if not more interesting, than some of the cultural forms that you watch and are just hideously bored by. Yeah, I mean, that's part of my concern, is that spe- part, of, part of what I find interesting about horror is the ways in which people get into horror uh, to some extent in order to make money, that it's it, because it's considered like a cheap or a lesser genre, that folks put out stories that and, and narratives that are really just there to sort of tantalize people and take their money. And yet you find so many of those examples that are clearly like, you know, not someone's high art per se, and yet something sort of transcendent comes across anyway. That like, oh, wow, like this was clearly they made this because some other movie made a lot of money and this is a ripoff. But but it still turned out to be something really amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I put to you that I don't think Toby Hooper was trying to really tell anything. Any, it wasn't really trying to get across any sort of deep message with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And yet... That movie is art, like transcendent, like there's nothing else like it. Uh, but I don't think it's um, – I don't think there's like a really deeper meaning there. And yet that movie is oftentimes like – it's been parodied, parodied how many times over the years and it's viewed as like just like another slasher film. And yet it's I, – I there's just – I mean that, that conveys – uh, I think it meets all the requirements of like an artistic piece. It conveys a sense of emotion. It conveys like a feeling, but it's still looked down upon as like you know. I mean, not most people don't look 
I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's not looked down upon by like like any serious film critic will be like, oh no, that's like it's a good movie. Blah, blah, blah. But most people, like your average normie person, is like, yeah, that's like you know, this is a trashy slasher. Yeah, people film. get killed. People a lot get there's it. like blood and there's some chicks and it's dumb. Yeah, and the other thing that people kind of miss is that, and I think this is true of horror specifically, is horror is an incredible medium for discussing political context, right? And, and the sure. yes. political and cultural context that. Toby Hooper was making films in directly informs the kind of story that he was telling. So you're not going to be able to, maybe, maybe there's nothing transcendent in it and that's fine, but it's still an incredible insight into what was happening in the American cultural consciousness that you get to kind of peel back the kind of polite layer, the veneer of civility and see what was really going on. Yeah. And I, I, I was recently thinking about this has been on my mind a lot lately. I, with the, you know, 2017, how um, there was this sort of renaissance of like intellectual horror, even though it's been there the whole time with movies like Get Out. For a minute, I was like, wow, we're really starting, you know, people are really starting to come around to like horror is like a legitimate form of like cinema and art. I think we've made it. I think I think we've we've come around that corner. And then they announced like the uh, Academy Award nominations. And I went on Facebook and saw, like, read some of the comment sections and people talking about Get Out. I'm like, no, we're, we're not. There are people like, this isn't, this isn't hard. This is dumb. This makes me feel bad as a white person, so I don't like it. And I was like, yeah, oh, we deserve boy. whatever we get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the horror, horror fandom in America sometimes, and I don't know if this is like this in other countries, but I know in this country, it can sometimes draw in some of the most knuckle-dragging mutant types that just, they're in there, they're in the theater for one thing. Cousin and, fucking pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fill the theaters to see the movies I love. Oh, God. All right. Hey, we should get started. So, uh, so you, we, 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 you talked a little bit about the horror you've done. Justin, you didn't get a chance yet to talk about what are some of the horror that you've watched that's because i was gonna wait for you and i was gonna go last because a true oh. a true gentleman always goes last i don't you just go just go <laughs> uh <laughs> um i'm actually uh i'm actually uh shit shit out of luck on this one i haven't been able to do i know i'm sorry my baby's been really sick so i haven't been able i mean unless you count the horror of dealing with a baby with a fever for a week and wondering like john said that's body horror that is yeah that's true that's a Loosely, if you if you describe your night with sick babe to me, yeah, in very vague terms, I'd be like, "That's fucking. That's like from beyond. It's from beyond without the other dimensions and no Barbara Crampton." Yeah, that's no, that's very fair. Uh, the the point being is that I have not had a chance to watch anything particularly horror related. You and I started to watch Beyond Skyline the other night and then turned it off because it was so bad. Now I will say, genre wise, that we watched yes. a little movie called uh, Brawl on Cell Block Ninety Nine. Uh, right? Is that 99? Yeah, is that Brawl it? And, Cell Block 99. and uh, let me go ahead and say, because I've had a lot of friends who are super stoked on this movie, and then a lot of friends who are not super stoked on this movie. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that I didn't like it. I didn't think it was very good. I think everyone is overestimating it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't. I, I you know, we, we, we ended it, and I thought, that's fine. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, there's just not, I just don't think there's that much there to it. Okay. See, my opinion has been the whole time. I'm just like, I mean, it was watchable. It was fine. I just wasn't blown away by it. Like it wasn't this like game changer. Like it was made out to be. Is this the Vince Vaughn one where they try and make him yeah. into an action movie star? <laughs> I will. Okay, I will say this: the way the action is filmed works really well in that they don't do any of this fucking shaky cam, quick cut. You literally get a wide shot of Vince Vaughn smushing someone's face in. Yeah, and so to that extent, I'm like. 
cool. Like that's a bold thing. But that's just I just feel like that's this director. And so this is the guy who did Bone Tomahawk. And I felt like Bone Tomahawk was pretty cool. And watching this, I'm starting to think that maybe this dude's a one trick pony in which he does depressing movies with intense gore and that's it. That's all he's got. And angsty white people. <laughs> and angsty white people. And and that's the other thing, like, come on, man, like there the, I I'm not going to say the movie – I'm not going to go so far as to say the movie is a problem, but I am going to say it's pretty tone deaf of a film in today's racial climate. Yes, absolutely. That here's this noble white man who must get past all these uh, very frustrating people of color in his way so that he can get to what he wants. And I think the film makes an effort to try to make it not about that, but it's just dumb. Like why even – how hard would it be to have it not be I realized literally just now. As you were saying that, yeah. his wife was being menaced by an evil Oriental. <laughs> that clicked in my mind just now, and I was like, okay, yeah, fuck that movie. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, Literally, it's like, okay, well, we need a character to be the abortionist. Well, he'll be the one Asian man this in This is the my film. abortionist, Dr. Manchu. Like, yes. Literally, oh, that's how it yeah. felt to me. It's just, again, I think the movie is trying in very small ways to avoid some of that. But that just highlighted it for me. I'm like, the only reason you have him say this comment in the movie is because you're worried people are going to feel like this movie is racist because, you know, but and, and again, I'm not saying it is. I just think it's a bad choice. And uh, honestly, the vibe of it, by the time it was done, it felt to me like, let's take the total thematic cues of a black exploitation movie, but just have it be a white guy. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's what it feels like is an ultra-violent exploitation film only with a white dude. Oh, yeah. nothing, nothing problematic or worth examining there. No, that's... Yeah, no, fine, no. cool. Co- completely sensitive, and, you know, they, they took care of it. They handled it great. Here's the deal. For real, 100% for real, I would not even say... Like, I would ignore some of that stuff and be very forgiving and just say, you know, I'm still on board for the next movie. But considering the next movie is like a kind of a pro-cop movie with Mel Gibson in it, <laughs> I'm a little bit skeptical <laughs> no. of this director now. Yeah, yeah no. exactly. So, again, I know lots of people who like it. I'm not trying to shit on... I'm not trying to yuck your yum, the friends who like it. But for me, no thank you. Justin? Liam, tell us about the 10 to 15 minutes we watched of Beyond Skyline. Now, when the Mexican cop called the alien a bitch and then it ate him, what do you think that the director, Liam O'Donnell, you, who wrote and directed this movie, was trying to say with that part? Okay. You know, it's not me. It's just a guy. And we don't need to talk about Beyond Skyline. It was, uh, we didn't get through it. No, we didn't. It was terrible. I might rewatch it, but I won't. Are you done? You haven't seen anything else? I'm 100%. So let me, uh, let me just skip. Wound up talking what I was saying. So there's things that I saw. This let's let me get my computer out. Tapping keys for no reason. You're trying to make tapping key noises, so it's believable. I watched a little film. The film. I'm going to call it a film. A film called Phoenix Forgotten. I've watched a lot of stuff. Phoenix Forgotten. Okay. Little found footage gem from 2017 about the Phoenix Lights. You're familiar with the Phoenix Lights? Uh, no, you know I don't care about alien shit. Yeah, John, are you familiar with the phenomenon of the Phoenix Lights? I've heard, a little, I've heard a little bit about this, yeah. Yeah, back in 94, in the out west in Arizona, there was UFOs. And it was this weird thing because, like, literally everyone in Phoenix saw them. They're on film a bunch of times, and the government did a very bad job of trying to explain them. And people were just like, there's fucking aliens. How was that not? How was that not? How was that not aliens? They're not flares, but... This movie was just like your typical setup where the, there's this this woman's trying to make a documentary about her brother who disappeared with two other kids back in 94. They went out in the desert to find, try and find these lights, which is tremendously stupid. 
and you deserve if you go after UFOs, you deserve whatever happens to you. Um, and I'm just saying, if if there was fucking lights in the sky right now, I would not be like Liam. You want to go check this out? We better go. We better get to the bottom of this. Like, no, fuck it. I'm. I don't want to know what they are. Um, I went into this movie being like, I'm gonna watch this and probably get terrified and turn it off, which happened. But I wasn't expecting to actually kind of enjoy this movie because most of the movie is just about this girl like trying to track down the footage of her brother and the acting for like a kind of like B-rate found footage like Netflix movie was actually pretty good. Like I actually felt like I was seeing a family dealing with the aftermath of of this kid going missing. Um, And in the ending, uh, there was no uh, there was no big payoff with the there was no uh, dark skies bedroom shot. There was no you didn't see the aliens at all. But the ending, I was still like, no, that actually worked in a way that, uh, you know, a a, a really tasteful less is more um, way. So that that was that was I I enjoyed that. Phoenix Forgotten. Check it out. Uh, And then I watched a movie called Before I Wake. Which oh I've been meaning to watch this and I haven't gotten into it yet. I think it might be the first great horror movie of 2018. Whoa! All right, yeah, Ooh, I mean, high praise. Um, written and directed by Mike Flanagan, who um we've talked about on the show before. He did Gerald's Game, uh, did a movie called Absentia, which I was a big fan of. Um, no, but it was a uh, really really good. I mean it. Mike Flanagan kind of has the tendency at times he kind of falls prey. He's a big fan of the uh, jump scare with the deep black eyes and the big mouth, you know, the quick. Yeah. Like, he, yeah, does, yeah. he, he does that sometimes, which kind of bums me out because he does other shit that's like truly horrific. And I'm like, just just do that. Like, just don't do the, 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 the fucking trite exorcism of Emily Rose jump scares. Just do what you're good at. Like, you don't need like fuck popular audiences. You, need, you don't need to fall back on that. Um, do you like the exorcism of Emily Rose? Um, I, I I didn't. We can keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it, Jennifer Carpenter was fine in it. Uh, I thought it was fine for what it was. Um, I just don't like her. That was I, you're, that's because you're you're less. You're less. Cool. That's what you are. <laughs> I appreciate you're broken. That. You're defective in some way. No, but before Wake was great. Um, uh, Thomas Jane is in it. Thomas Jane is in it. He's awesome. Um, I thought the ending it took. Uh, it wasn't quite as dramatic as the ending of an American War in London, which goes from like silly comedy to horror to like existentially depressing. Um, but it definitely the end took like a tonal shift that I was like, wow, that's really a is a bummer. Like it's it's very it's very sad when they when when everything when they when there's the whole when everything ties together and it's all revealed like why all this is happening. It's like fuck, that's a really that's a bummer. Like that's very sad. Um. And then last night I watched a movie called The Open House on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. Yeah, I've heard about this. And I don't want to bad I don't want to badmouth it too much because I don't want to lose our 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 sweet Netflix sponsor money. But uh, it wasn't that good. We don't have Netflix sponsor money. I know, I'm joking. That's and seventeen percent on Rotten Tomatoes sounds Rightf- <laughs> rightfully so. It's um. <laughs> Nothing made any fucking sense in this movie. Like, all this shit happened, and I was like, okay, all this stuff is cool as long as it leads up to something. And then the movie was just over, and I was like, no, you can't just fucking do that. Like, you can't just, like, it it, it was just like, I, I was watching last night, and I was like, okay, some of this stuff is scary. 
like there's there's some like there were some creepy scenes involving like these weird uncut long shots of like people being in a room with someone that they they were unaware that there was someone else in the room with them and i was like okay well this is neat and interesting and where's it going there's a woman in a basement that's pretty cool okay the lights are this is scary and then they were just like and then it was just over i don't know if that was just sloppy filmmaking or if it was a sad attempt at just like some sort of commentary upon like oh not everything has a reason that it has sometimes bad shit just happens but like even where there are movies where the plot is that just sometimes bad shit happens there's still a fucking plot this movie was just like i'm just watching people have a miserable time for no reason and this kid's fucking yelling at his mom and there's someone else in the house and all this awful shit's happening no thanks and i forget who recommended this movie to me but they recommended it highly and i'm gonna fucking find out who it was and um fuck them <laughs> yeah, it it does yeah. not sound you've you've not sold it to me. This sounds no, no. like a bad use of your time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely feel as if something was taken from me. <laughs> I definitely feel like I'm less of a human being now. Um uh, having looked at the the other work of the director and writer, yeah. <laughs> what else has he done? I didn't I didn't even I was I was beyond re- I was I was mad beyond reasoning after fin- finishing this movie last night. What else? What else has this Joker done? Uh, well, uh, he's he has got a long, long uh, TV filmography. His first appearance being in a '96 episode of Goosebumps. Um, director of um, yeah, he was in the Open House and uh, a lot of other really low rent horror stuff. So, it, guy oh. sounds like a hack. Oh, I can confirm for you that he is a hack. I can, I can, <laughs> I can take that sounds like a hack out of there and just one hundred percent confirm it. Uh, have you either? You guys seen on the internet? No, so that was that was that. Those are the movies that I watched involving horror. Have you guys seen the Truth or Dare trailer yet? No. Okay. No. Don't watch it. It's, I will not. It's it, it's it's. Uh, if if one of you had said yeah yeah, I'd have been like oh cool let's let's hate this movie, but um. And if you want to waste two and a half minutes of your life, go find it and watch it. But it looks, it, it looks, uh, if Before I Wake was the first great horror film of 2018, this is going to be the movie that uh, is not going to make any of my lists at the end of the year. Sure, sure. Um, and then this isn't horror related. Have either of you checked out the uh, Godzilla Planet of the Monsters animated feature on Netflix? So I started watching, it's, it's a few, is it multiple episodes or something? It's the first in a trilogy of movies. Okay, so I started watch. I started watching it. Yeah, that style of animation straight up bums me out. Okay, but I think it's pretty that. well written so far. Yeah, it looks incredible. Oh, the, the design, the, the creature design is um, yeah, is is awesome. Uh, and I, I mean, it's not like I said, it's not technically hard, but uh, this movie put me on a Godzilla kick for the past few days, and I actually. <laughs> Got myself worked up into a powerful sadness the other night watching the uh, the original Japanese original in Criterion the other day, and I was like, "Yeah, it must have really sucked being like a, per- a person in Japan seeing this movie nine years after the atomic bombings." Like, I would have got up and yeah. walked out of the fucking theater. But no, I, I guess that really wraps up my um, what I've watched. Oh, I did watch. I was telling Liam this before we started. I recently watched "Call Me by Your Name" starring Army Hammer, and I cannot get it out amazing. of my head. Movies amazing. Have you, John, have you seen that yet? I I have not, but my my timeline has been raving about it. Oh my god! Uh, I watched a trailer. I did want to mention, and I only wanted to mention it because it's right up Justin's alley. Even though I think it might be terrible, it is something we've talked about before. It's a little movie called Primal Rage. 
Primal Rage, like the video game from the 90s? Yes, but it's not the video game from the 90s. Why are you telling me this? Thing? It's definitely a people in the woods being hunted by Bigfoot movie. I what? <laughs> and I saw the trailer and I thought, that's right up Justin's alley. It's called Primal Rage? It's called Primal Rage. You need to Man. watch the trailer when you get a chance. I am going to watch it when I... I love a good Bigfoot behaving badly movie. You know it. I know. Sometimes big feet, they behave badly. And sometimes good movies come out of that. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes when Bobcat Goldthwait directs the movie, it doesn't come out that well. Now, I have a sneaking <laughs> suspicion from the trailer that the big feet will turn out to be not a big feet. What do you mean? That the, the suspicion in the movie is that we're haunted a Sasquatch. And then... Some of the shots, I thought, oh, it's not a Sasquatch. It's like a whole other thing. Like they think it's a Sasquatch. They've already made a movie about that, though. They already well, made. A, I don't. I'm they made a movie. I didn't like, make this made movie, movie, Justin. You are responsible. You brought this into my life. You have to <laughs> Look what you've done. Yeah, no, they made. They made like a found footage movie like six or seven years ago called The Lost Coast Tapes. Oh, I do remember that. Where like it, the whole thing was like, the whole movie. You think that the Bigfoot are like attacking these people, and then like. It does have one of our favorite stereotypes: the wise Native American uh-huh, who tells fuck. them. The people of the forest are not here to hurt us. They are here to protect us from the evil spirits from beyond. You're like, oh, shit, those are interdimensional ultra-terrestrials who are here to fucking defeat us. No, I was never like that because I would never have that thought. That movie, I was like that. See, I saw this movie and I was like, fuck, the Bigfoot are fighting the ultra-terrestrials. I can get down with that. I mean, the movie wasn't great, but still. They already made this movie where they think they're hunting Bigfoot and they're not. The problem with this movie, and again, it still made me think of you, is that it also has uh, the – well, he's not a magical – uh, Native American. He's a cop Native American, but he does say, like, my people have stories of the... Love and it. this particular Bigfoot seems to have weapons and a mask. They're like, God damn it, Officer Running Bear, we don't have time for these stories. I just think it's funny that it's like, not only is he a giant hairy creature, but he also has a hatchet made of bone. How unnecessary. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. So, uh- I'm still going to watch this movie. Let me yeah, probably. I'm still going to watch this movie. All right. So uh, oh, I guess we're going to take a break. Real quick, I want to give a shout out. I was supposed to be on the Nerds of Nostalgia podcast this past week, but they are out in Kansas City and got like seven feet of snow. Yeah. Was it Nerds of Nostalgia or Nightmare Junkhead? I believe it was Nerds of Nostalgia. Okay. Um, but they are doing their bracket, their 2017 bracket. No, that's brackets. Nightmare Junkhead. Is that Nightmare Junkhead? It's the same guys. Okay, that's just yeah. their, their horror just, podcast uh, is Nightmare Junkhead. Okay, so Nightmare Junkhead, yeah. I was supposed to be on there to talk about uh, They Live and Hellraiser 2. And oh I was supposed to give this guys a shout out. Two of my faves, although yeah. one of them is much more of a fave than the other. Yes, I know. I mean, you love Hellraiser 5 Inferno much more than you like oh, Hellraiser 2. Oh, God, I but, fucking hate you so uh, much. So I just want to give those guys a shout out. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to, I still do want to be on the show because I want to talk about John Carpenter and fucking whoever directed Hellraiser 2. When I was on there, I got to talk about Martin and Suspiria. Wow. The TV show Martin? <sighs> I don't like this new dynamic we have where you're the jokester and I'm the straight man. Can we go back to the other way? I was never the straight man. (laughs) All right. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about 1990s, the film that introduced one of my least favorite terms into the American consciousness, the psychological thriller. Ugh. Jacob's Ladder. (laughs) We'll be right back. Every day, Jacob Singer goes to work. What's wrong? Uh, It's one of those days. 
And every day he wonders what is happening to him. Maybe it's the pressure, Jake. They're like demons, Jess. They weren't human. What were they, Jake? Let me look at your hand. You have a very strange line. See, according to this, you're already dead. Something's wrong, Jake. They're coming after me. I don't know who they are or what they are, but they're going to get me, and I'm scared, Jake. I've seen them, too. Maybe the demons are real. He's running 106 feet. This is barbaric. I can get rid of the demons. Who are you? I can block the ladder. Where are you taking me? Where am I? Where do you want to go? Home. This is your home. You're dead. I'm not dead. What are you then? I'm alive. I'll just edit it. It's fine. Okay. Right, and we are back to talk about 1990s psychological horror film, Jacob's Ladder. Released on November 2nd, 1990, written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who also wrote such films as Deadly Friend, Brainstorm, Deep Impact, and Ghost. I like two of those movies. Uh, you like Deep Impact and Brainstorm. <laughs> I hate you. And directed, <laughs> directed by Adrian Lin, who directed Fatal Attraction, Nine and a Half Weeks, Flashdance, Indecent Proposal, and my favorite Diane Lane and Richard Gere film, Unfaithful. That movie makes me sick to my stomach every time I watch it, because... Ooh, it just makes me feel dirty in a way that. Did you make a jerk off motion during Flashdance? I hate. F- f- oh, no, I'm sorry. I thought I was thinking Footloose. That's what I Flashdance. I'm fine with. Yeah, it's uh, Footloose. Okay. I was gonna say I didn't know this dude's career until you just read it, and I was ready to like get scoffing about at least one of these movies. I think I like uh, all of those movies. Yeah, those, just... those are all pretty good movies. Let's <laughs> not front about this. The man has got game. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, the, and he made Jacob's Ladder? Holy shit. There's a lot of people, and, and like the guy who produced it, he, all, he also produced Basic Instinct, Starship Troopers, and fucking Midnight Express. Jesus Christ! Like, that's what's Good up. work, Alan Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, had a budget of $25 million, only grossed $26.1 million at the box office. Uh, that's which a bummer. I kind of knew that. I remember going... I, that, that was... I mean, it sucks, but this movie is like... This is this is an actual cult movie. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It's not one of those movies where nobody watches it and they're just like, oh, it's a cult movie. It's got a cult following. Like, had all three of us seen it before? Have you seen it before, John? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you remember uh, when you first saw it? I think I saw it for the first time on uh, late night TV, like when when parents were out for an, for like uh, an evening, and you just do the thing where you're kind of flicking through. And I stumbled across this movie, uh, I think, probably about halfway through. Oh, and man. was just... Because so, it was just before the scene on the gurney. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the, the gurney scene has been sort of burned into my memory. For, for good about, reason. Yes. For about 13 or 14 years now. Uh, oh, yeah. it's Justin, would you first see it? Uh, I could, I couldn't, I, this was like one of those movies, um, I couldn't pin down when I first, I remember hearing about it before I actually went and saw it. And I, I, I remember hearing, um, cause I, I know I, I saw it sometime in the nineties and how I first heard about it was, um, 
if you guys remember it, like in the nineties, like every horror movie had that like shaky head thing. Like yeah, the, the totally. shaky, twitchy yeah, head yeah, effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was in like every like music video and like that was just everywhere. And uh I'm trying to think who it might have been like my dad or someone was just like, Yeah, like you should see Jacob's Ladder and like you know, that's that's the movie that that started all this and it has like a really weird ending. Uh but yeah, as to pin down when I've when I've when I, I could tell you I could I could tell you the last time I watched it before, last time I watched it was in in college uh, before I watched it with you, and it's just I haven't watched it since then. Yeah, it's been a while for me. I think I watched it again when the Blu-ray came out because I remember getting it because I was so stoked. And this is a movie that I saw in '92. We got basic cable at my house, which meant that I started watching TV. All I mean, I was already watching too much TV as a kid and, <laughs> and watching too many, you know, VHS stuff. Like we had a lot of stuff like taped off of HBO that other people taped for us, but we never had cable until '92. That's like I was 13 or so, and we got cable, and I just started like voraciously watching everything I could. And this was on USA a lot. Yes, yes, yeah. um, and I managed to catch a lot of bits of it. But it was, you know, it was still edited on basic cable. So eventually I convinced friends to rent it in high school and which for me, again, I think that was like 95. And so uh, I remember watching it and it was not a fun sleepover. Movie. Like it, it no. was like we had rented it for like fun time friend hangs. And it was when it ended, I was like, oh, that was such a bummer. Put on put on a pick me up like faces of death or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. It wasn't that. It also has uh we just we know who's in it, Tim Robbins. You know, he was in a little movie called Howard the Duck, another movie sure. about some movie, Shawshank Redemption, you might have heard of it. Yeah. He's also in High Fidelity. His role in High Fidelity is amazing. I'll Pro- give you that. Probably my favorite Tim Robbins movie. Um it's partially inspired by a short story called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which I think I was required to read in 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 in, in, in uh junior high, and I think I probably knew about that before I knew about this. Uh, it has a lot of random uh, um, small parts, like uh, Lewis Black is in this movie, yeah. Kyle Gass is in this movie. Um, who else? There's there's a few like just Ving Rhames is in it. Like yeah, Danny mean, Aiello uh, is in it, but that's all. And of course, Macaulay Culkin is in this film as well. Um, this movie <laughs> came out. I think I read like two weeks before Home Alone came out. <laughs> that's insane to me. <laughs> That's kind of great, though, right? Like, I guess. I mean, that a child was in this movie? Like, yeah. I mean, I love children of horror movies. Yeah, but I mean, this isn't like, this isn't like, uh, some, something tells me that Adrian Lyne was not the friendly grandfather that, like, Stanley not... Kubrick was to, 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 to Danny Lloyd in The Shining, where he was like, the child shall not see anything that goes on in this. I don't, set. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm sure it was fine. All his scenes are real chill. Yeah. He's I mean, not in anything scary. Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, so let's get into like what we actually think of this movie. Okay. So John, you go first cause you are our guest of honor. Oh, how, how, how does this movie make you feel? This is bleak. I think is, I think is the word that if I had to sum it up with one kind of emotional state, it is bleak. Um, it is a film about, uh, well, without going into too many spoilers, it's a film about uh, death. No, you can spoil all of it, bro. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. It, yeah, it's a, it's a film about death. It's a film about the the kind of limitations of mortality, um, and it's 
you know, hugely influ- influential. I think the connection between this and Silent Hill is a really interesting yes. aesthetic connection to make, uh, particularly um, in its uh, sound design and its, you know, that kind of famous head twitching. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's an incredible an incredible bit of filmmaking. Um, Tim Robbins is uh, at points genuinely heartbreaking, um, and I you really feel for the guy. You really do feel for for him. There were a few people when it came out who were a little bit frustrated by the constant kind of. There's quite a few fake outs that happen, um, and I'm quite glad that there is some excellent editing here because you can get uh, versions with extra scenes put back in. And mostly, I don't really think they add anything. I like the fact that it's very coherent, very tight, very cohesive. Um, but yeah, it is. If you if you want to feel really bad about just you want to kind of have an existential crisis, this is the film for you. I like that. I like I like I like that you uh you had brought up the um. First off, I agree with literally every word that you said. Every word you said was right. This movie is so such a fucking bummer. Like every every bit of dialogue in this movie is like, except when when he's walking home and the and the women are like yelling Mister Postman to him. That's a little yeah. The up. one light moment, the yeah, one light moment is when fucking, they have the little... a, like in a sea of darkness. It's just like one star in a night sky where all the other stars are gone and they're never coming back. Um. We watched an extra scene. We watched the scene that was deleted. Uh, Liam and I did where it was, uh, it's like towards the end, like right before there's the big revelation that like he's dead or whatever. And I, I guess it's, um, what was Elizabeth Pena's character name? Jesse. Oh yeah. His, yeah. Uh, Jesse. Yeah. yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Je- Cause Jezebel. Yeah. Jezebel. Yeah. Um, she comes back and does some weird shit and it kind of is like, yeah, I see why they cut that out. Like it didn't really add to them i i can't see that in the in the final how that would have fit in the final movie yeah she like turns into a monster and it's just not needed it doesn't do anything for the story yeah it, i it, mean that's that's the thing i really like about this is this is an incredibly in, in so so many ways it's so understated and very quiet right there is only a few right. scenes where like the sound design really kicks up a few gears um and a lot of it is done on subtlety and what because you you enter in that into that kind of position where you go is he just someone who's kind of losing it or is all of this weird stuff actually happening to this poor guy and that indeterminacy is where a lot of the tension of the narrative comes from i also think that the style cinematography matches that uncertainty is because like a lot of this movie works only because you're catching these like really quick glimpses of like truly horrific shit happening I mean, like, the scene where they're at that groovy party and Elizabeth is, like, getting down and there's a fucking weird thing behind her. Like, if you could actually see what that thing was, it wouldn't have been nearly as scary. But because you're only seeing these, like, strobe lights, like, flashes of it and these, like, these, these, like, weird snapping jaws at, at, like, midair, it just, it's like a fucking fever dream. And it's so, you're like, it's like the, 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 all the editing, it's not giving you, it, it, it doesn't give you like, like the human mind is comforted by patterns. Adrian, Adrian Lynn offers no patterns in this movie. And exactly. I've, I've never seen another movie successfully accomplish, accomplish that. I, I feel like I have seen a couple others, but I, but I, I think you're right. Especially you, that's the perfect scene because I legitimately think if you just saw a shot of uh of Jesse basically booty grinding on a demon 
that falls then into farce. That becomes funny. Like that's yeah. like not actually compelling. But the fact that she is, you know, uh, enraptured to the point of you don't know what's going on and you can't see what it is. But all you know from what little you see and from uh, Tim Robbins' response to it is that it's fucking s- terrible. It's mind-bendingly terrifying. Yeah, I think it's unbelievably and just so well done. And and the, I think that's true, like when you said uh, John understated, I think that's true in such a great way. Like this film to me, it, it feels like a piece of music that is like very calming and then has these like very brief crescendos. But because of those... Because the rest of the film is so just uh, quiet and just slightly creepy that the few times it, like, builds to a height are, like, so fucked up. Like, they just really get under your skin because of the restraint of the rest of the film. It's all about detail. It's all about, like, one of the things I remember from the first time I watched it is um, when he wakes up on the subway right uh, very near the beginning – uh, after reading, he's reading Camus' The Stranger as well, which is an amazing right. yes. bit of uh, character design. And he walks off and he sees sees the guy with the kind of tail. Yeah, and and you can't the, see the tail at all. And you're like, is did I did I? You, you find yourself going, did I just see that? Was that real? And you end up being put into the same position as the protagonist, right? You end up going, I don't really know what I'm so. Because there's so many moments where you sort of double take with what's in the frame. This film has a great way of de- of dealing with faces, right? There are so many, so many good uses of faces, often through windows or through uh, through glass, which are kind of distorted and made into kind of monsters. Yeah, and you scene- you end up going, I don't I don't know whether I'm I was supposed to see that or not. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's funny when when Liam and I sat down to watch this um, last week. The scene in particular, this the scene that really, really got to me when I was when I was a little kid, was when it's when the car is like chasing him at first, and he jumps out of the way and he sees it like drive away, and you see in the in the rear window there's this like vibrating, shaking person, and it popped as we're sitting on the watch. It, I'm like, I used to be so fucking scared of that thing. I don't know what it was because it's not like scary in a traditional way. It's just something about it. It looks like something literally out of a nightmare like something that's nonsensical and like creepy and sort of like the land of confusion video by genesis you know like the weird muppet thing it looks kind of yeah, like yeah, that yeah. <laughs> and then i'm like i'm like watching it i'm like is it was it just like was it just me as a kid that was like afraid of nothing for no reason and then we saw it and i was like oh no it's still just as fucking frightening as it was when i was a child it's still there it's i'm i'm a child again like and it's all yeah it's it's all that half scene suggested did I really see that? That really, really, really pushes this movie into like batshit territory. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I realized I didn't actually say what I thought, but uh, you uh, oh, that's true. <laughs> um, no, but really, like it is, uh, it's a disturbing film, and it's a film that um, it kind of worked its way into my nightmares, not just because of uh, the 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 particularly scary moments but there is this kind of overall bleak like what it even is fucking life sort of aspect of the film this kind of anxiety and 
um, even the way it works out. So we'll just say the, 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 the movie turns out to be, uh, an extended death dream that he has actually died in, uh, Vietnam. And, and in this, this experience he's having, he's like letting go, he's letting go of things. He's letting go of the attachments that are kind of keeping him here. And then once he can finally let go, he dies. And that, you know, whatever. And I remember as a kid watching it, right? And that was like very depressing to me. Like as a, as a, as a kid, when I watched this movie, and I say kid, like teenager watching this movie, I thought, what a fucking downer. Like just, <laughs> oh my God. Jesus Christ. Like this was the most depressing thing I had seen up to that point, which actually isn't true. But, um, but it, but that's how it felt at the time. Watching it now, I actually think the ending is kind of hopeful. It's like a kind of an up note considering how down most of the movie is to be like, Oh well, all he had to do was just uh, let go, go upstairs with the, with Macaulay Culkin, yeah, and now he's dead. And, uh, you know that's not great. Being dead isn't necessarily great, but it's better than the hellscape he was li- yeah. living in. And and I felt like, and John, I I, I kind of would like your take on this. Uh, I don't know if this is what the script intended, especially because we watch a little bit of the special features, and uh, the guy who wrote the script seems like a real wackadoo to me. But but <laughs> I feel like I feel like the movie could kind of be seen as like uh we're in a nightmare right like like new york the new york he lives in is a bit of a nightmare and it's yeah, a nightmare totally. we're all having after vietnam like vietnam ended and now we're all fucked up and yeah, he's, yeah, I mean, his 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 life nightmare is our nightmare yeah you, you you kind of typical narrative arc that you're supposed to take is you go off to war you return and you return to a kind of utopia right you return right. to a place that you've won through your acts of war but he comes back and New York is gray. Uh, the weather is never any good. The place is covered in like garbage. It's lonely. It's kind of existentially bleak. He's a and, he's a postman with a PhD because Macaulay Culkin <laughs> is dead. Yeah, too real. <laughs> As someone who is currently looking for an academic job, that is just too real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that even that idea that like. They really want to highlight this idea of his wasted potential, but also that it can't be any other way because it it comes not just from a shitty job market, but because he can't deal now that his son has died. And even like the relationship – I mean, again, I think in the context of the film, Jesse – is sort of like a barrier to him, really. It's one of the things keeping him in this dream state. But as a character, before I start to sort of see her that way, I actually understand her reaction to him. Like, he is living as if he's moved on, but then in reality, he's holding their life hostage to his pain, that he can never really have a life with her because he can never really let go of what he's been through. And, and you know, there's something about that sort of haunting as well. I mean, I think that's the, that's one of the kind of primary ideas of this film is the, the idea that there are certain kind of traumas, certain things that you go through that, no matter what you think you might come back to, that isn't going to be enough to sort of help you get over it, right? Life is existentially damaging in a really profound way. And so we create all of these structures, whether that be your uh, hot girlfriend from the post office that you work with or the kind of idyllic... She's so hot, by the way. I I, I don't want to get to on that, but like... (sighs) 
She's <laughs> yeah, no, oh, that great. idyllic family life with you know the the wife and three you know picture perfect children. Right. We create those as kind of barriers against the kind of basic existential horror that is existence. You know that's that's Camus' point in the myth of Sisyphus that the the one serious philosophical problem is why are we not all just trying to get out of this nightmare that is living? And so, like, eventually you do have to give up on all of those ties because they're illusions, they're, mm-hmm. they're transitory, they're, they're things that you've created through your own mind to shield you from the reality of your own situation. Um, and by, it's not by, even... the, by the way, to Camus' point, uh, chorizo tacos. That's why I'm not trying to <laughs> get out of this because of chorizo tacos. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. And, you know, the, the, the moment in the film that I find so fascinating is when... Uh, Louis comes to visit him in the hospital and breaks him out and he says, this is barbaric what you're doing to him. This is barbaric. And there are so many ways that you can read that little scene because to, what we, what you could say is that this kind of medical structure, you know, trying to keep people alive past their time is another way of these, another way that we're kind of trying to shield ourselves from our existential reality. Right. That theme of um, <clears throat> that, you know, all this is like an illusion is – I wouldn't call it a problem I have with this movie uh, because I, I really don't have any problems with this movie. But one of the things that I, I, I never really understood was how um, Louis injects this sense of like Christian theology into this movie when the themes in this movie are far more Buddhist than anything. That it's this that he's holding on to, you know, in order to in order to move on and just go on to whatever level of existence he needs to, you know, let go of these attachments he's had in life. I don't think that's a, is that a Christian idea? Like, really? I mean, I'm looking. At, um, I mean, so so like he quotes Louis quotes um, Meister Eckhart. Yeah, yeah. Um, your 13th century German theologian. Yeah. Who is kind of known as a sort of mystic uh, theologian, okay? Rather than so, this is kind of Christian theology that speaks kind of in the negative sense, right? The 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 idea of mystical theology is you can't really make positive statements about God. Um, Apo- and Apo- yeah, he was accused- is that the is that the term I'm looking for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was Eckhart was accused of being uh, a heretic for a long, long time. And so Catholic uh, seminaries and the Catholic Church didn't really uphold his teaching. And that's only recently started to change. I mean, I say recently, you know, we're talking in the 20th century. Um, So, like, arguably there is a sense that uh, Eckhart does tie it to a Christian tradition. Schopenhauer, that kind of great 19th century philosopher of gloom and depression said that him, Eckhart, and the Buddha all taught basically the same thing. So there's definitely yeah. connections. Yeah, I would say, because I was, I was thinking about your question, Justin, I think there is <sighs> there is a tradition of thought that would tie uh, and that's not completely uh, uh, that's not uh, completely detached from scripture, right? Like Paul talking about spirit and flesh, 
You know, like if you think of flesh as similar to the Buddhist idea of attachment, which a lot of Christians have. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. You I mean if you? It's one of those things. If you get into the weeds of it, they're not anything alike each other. But if you take a like a larger sort of like, well, they're kind of. You know, you can see the resonances there. Um, that part didn't really bother me. I, I think more it was like once the film sort of reveals itself at the end of like he is going through this process of dying, what I find myself wondering is what is the function that Louis, he gives him structure. He sort of helps him when he's in crisis in a way, but is he keeping him there or is he helping him move on? And that's one thing I, I isn't clear to me because on one hand he does give him the insight he needs at like a key moment. On the other hand, he helps him feel less pain and he kind of makes the experience of this dream more pleasant for him in in a way. So I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm not saying that every character needs to break down that way. But I always thought that situation where he's about to get institutionalized, I and 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 Louis comes in and, and helps him. I've always kind of wondered, like, what is that about? Like, um, what what? It, since there's a direction he's going, is there a is there a way that he ends this experience? And wakes up, or is there a way he ends this experience and he goes to hell or to, you know what I mean? Like, what does the, is, is the end where he goes up the steps with Macaulay supposed to represent not just him letting go of his body, but him going in a direction? Because there are aspects of what's happening to him that feels like he could end up in a less pleasant place. Well, I, well, I mean, I mean, the, the, the Eckhart quote, Louis, you know, I, 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 I'm not familiar with Eckhart's teachings, but, uh, I think what he's, you know, the whole thing where he says it's like, you know, I mean, it's kind of hellraiser, you know, demons to some angels to others, but, uh, I just got the sense that like, you know, it, it was, it, it, I don't know if it was about heaven or hell. I think it was just about moving on. Right. Like, I don't think, I don't think there's like a moral element to the, the afterlife that this movie is presenting. No, I don't mean that, but I mean, why is it so unpleasant? Like, the, if it's just this experience he's going through as he's dying, why does it so often turn towards the monstrous, like demons? I think, he's, and- I think he's making it. I think he's making it. I think he's making it difficult. I think that was like a an unconscious, like in in the same way. That I don't think Louis is a separate, like Louis and 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 Jesse. I don't think are separate entities from. Jacob Singer. So you're, you're, the, okay, so what you're making it sound like to me is that you are completely psychologizing this experience. That like, that like all the various aspects of this dream he's going through or this experience, this vision, this whatever, that these are all formations of his own mind before he dies. Okay, but I do think that because I don't think there's, I don't think there are external, I don't think there's like an external entity like working its, See, I'm not convinced. I kind of was like, I'm kind of torn between. So let's let me actually. This will help because this is what I was going to say about these two movies. I think earlier John said that this movie is ultimately about death, and I think that that's true, especially in its screenplay form. But I think that in the actual film you're watching, there's an experience before the reveal at the end where this movie could also be seen as being about mental illness. That like it's very possible that our man's is just crazy that he's just going through things that crazy people go through and that's what made me think about the next movie we're going to talk about but the solution in this movie being that he's actually dead and this is his process of dying sort of like takes away all that anxiety about his own illness and the illness of the world around him and sort of puts it in a supernatural context like it, it almost feels to me like a uh 
literal deus ex machina in the sense of like oh he's just dying it's all supernatural it does, whatever it, like it, it new does. york isn't actually a hellhole and we're not actually all living in a nightmare post-vietnam he's just dying yeah. oh okay it, it also does kind of neuter the uh the, the theme of like the u.s military was uh pumping our soldiers full of fucking drugs during vietnam war it kind of takes the, the fangs away from that as yeah well. which is like actually a real thing and at the end they just tackle on that thing like yeah they did that like yeah, yeah well that's the matter. weirdest part of the movie to me is the postscript of by the way they really did experiment yeah i mean not on but this they've guy denied it all the way through of yeah. course they did really, yeah. they don't need to fucking tell me that i've read the books but i'm no, just saying yeah. like it that that part is actually the only part i i wouldn't say i don't like because i just love this movie but the part that's weird is Everything he goes through is either, as you're saying, in his mind or, as I think, an actual supernatural experience. This is like somewhere between uh, almost like a like a purgatory experience, but like less literal like that. But um, that's sort of how I'm seeing it, that like that he's going through it, but that there are exteriors creating this experience for him. Okay. But either way, it is very weird to then be like, uh, you know, all that stuff we said about the experiments. It's true. That's a weird. I mean, I do. I do think that the kind of stuff on the experiments is a little bit of kind of weak source when you like I was just doing a little bit of uh, reading up uh, before we we jumped on the call and there was an alternate title for this film, which was Dante's, which was Dante's Inferno. I'm very glad they didn't call it that. <laughs> so, yeah, which would be a little bit too on the nose, right? It would right. be a little bit too obvious. That's that's the thing about this movie is um, I, I put I put a, uh, an article that was written on Uprocks a few years ago for the 25th anniversary. I, I put it up on our on our Twitter on our on our Twitter feed. Um, the original script for this was far more on the nose than this movie was. The original script for this had actual demons with like horns and like pitchforks and all that shit. And then when Adrian uh, Lyon took over, he was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to fucking do anything that's like, you know, he went in and there was actually, that was a point of contention between him and the screenwriter is the screenwriter wanted this very traditional, very on point, very on the nose theological story. And then Adrian Lyon was like, no, let's have the fucking demons look like people suffering from uh, thalatomide deformities. And we're not going to have these... Um, a lot of religious iconography in the movie. Instead, we're just going to do like a lot of weird, psychedelic, horrifying shit. But I think that's why that the film, in its current form, separate from the screenplay, ends up being about to some extent mental illness and traumatic stress. And there's a lot of image. There's there's a lot of like horrific imagery in in, in especially when he's about to get committed. Like, I'm sure to a person who is being committed who doesn't think they're insane, that's probably similar to how they view the medical profession right these like faceless weirdos who are like you know jamming shit in their head and like i mean i get that and on one hand you know maybe this could be a simile for uh for mental illness uh especially if you subscribe like i do that it is a psychological movie and that it is all in his head as he's dying and it's not supernatural in any way I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to do the kind of stereotypical academic thing, but I don't necessarily think <laughs> there's a conflict here. Right? I don't no, I, 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 I agree, but I still think I'm more right than he. he is. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course, because that 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 sequence where he's being wheeled on the gurney down to X-ray, aside from being w- just an incredibly well put together bit of movement. It is both a kind of symbolic 
reference to um, a descent into hell, quite obviously, uh, drawing on drawing on Dante and drawing on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as well as being a kind of representation of the subjective experience of somebody suffering from a mental health problem being forcibly committed against their will. Well, and I, so, I I think this is that's the point at which I think it's similar to the other movie in that. Um, it in some ways is a film that puts you as the audience member in a place where you might not be sure what's real. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like sort of putting you in a place where you, you don't know if you can trust what's happening or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so one thing I, I, I want to talk about before we move on is the, the, the legacy of this movie. Um, I think we're all of the age of that. This movie still has like the, like when I, when I when I announced on our you know various social media things that we were doing Jacob's ladder, there was a lot of there was not a lot of people, but there were people who were like, uh, the one comment was like, I'm surprised you guys haven't done this already. There was another comment like, Oh my god, that movie fucked me up as a kid. But there was a lot of people. I was actually, uh, you know, you know, you were talking earlier earlier about Silent Hill, um, the party that I was at with Reject where we were harassing Liam. Um, I was talking to someone, we had been talking about video games and somehow Silent Hill came up and I was like, oh, it's interesting because for our next episode of Hard Business, we're doing Jacob's Ladder, you know, a, 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 a movie that the look of which greatly influenced Silent Hill and the look of horror movies in the 90s. And this person was a touch bit younger than me and it was like just blank, like not completely blank, but like unfamiliar with like Jacob's Ladder. And it made me wonder, like, is is this movie like amongst people not in our generation the sort of like monolithic definition of like mind fucking horror uh because this is like i when you know if you watch like the i i posted it on facebook the bravo's hundred scariest movie moments i think this movie is like in the top 20 like specifically the fucking uh lady marmalade scene where jesse gets the demon thing comes out but, sure. but I, I i don't know if this movie has like the impact on like on on people that like it has on on us like you know what i mean like i I don't i mean despite the fact that it 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 definitely like you couldn't back in the 90s you could not watch a movie without having that fucking twitchy head thing or the weird medical imagery and like i remember like marilyn manson videos all had that and and, like david fincher did seven where it had that look but now it's like i think that this i i I think like what this movie brought to horror cinema still lingers on but i don't think this movie gets it's like just due in the minds of a lot of horror fans or maybe maybe i'm just like misreading people i actually and for me i think that's true of this movie and then i don't know if you guys like this movie what do you think of that um serpent in the rainbow amazing yeah. Also, also a movie that no one fucking talks about anymore. And I put those two again. I'm not saying they're that similar, but they were both movies that I watched as a kid and was like, they were the first of these sorts of like in your mind heart. Because for me, horror before that was your Nightmare on Elm Streets, your Friday Thirteenth, your uh, Halloween, whatever. Some of which are great. Like I'm not downplaying those, but these were the first ones where I was like. This scares me, but there's no scary guy. You know, like these fucking yeah, yeah. get under my skin, but they're not the same sort of thing. Uh, and yet now, I talk to so many people who don't even know what these fucking movies are. Yeah, it's weird. And so there's there's probably like a good reason for this, and this is kind of reflective of the way that horror cinema has kind of shifted between the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. So 80s horror generally tends to be a little more 
uh, conservative, right? You've got kind of sure. Reagan-esque politics at home, so you need a good message to tell all these teenagers that if you sneak out to your house party when your parents have told you not to, to smoke and hook up and have sex and, and drink too much, then there is going to be a masked man who's going to slice you in half. That's a kind of good kind of moralistic message that, that, that Hollywood is putting out at the time of the 80s. Like, the 90s is supposed to be the kind of utopian time in, in American cinema. It's the time of, like... Even the disaster movies are supposed to be slightly fun. But there's this kind of persistent existential worry that can't quite be completely healed, which I think is where the kind of really bleak, atmospheric horror like Jacob's Ladder comes in. And what's interesting about it is that it doesn't provide the kind of immediate spectacle of horror but it's actually speaking to maybe something a little bit more profound and a little bit more kind of deeply ingrained that we have to kind of pick down to get at. Yeah, I definitely think it's it's a little it, it, it's I hate to say cerebral, but I do think it's a little too cerebral for like a casual you know, your casual consumer of horror films and also like we talked about earlier, the way this movie looks and the way it's shot, it doesn't really lend itself to you know, like, I like, I don't know, the 1988 version of The Blob, because it's very like, oh, there's The Blob, it's melting Jeffrey DeMunn, holy shit, it's doing this, it's doing that. <laughs> and in this movie, it's like, what's, you know, it, you can't, like, there's no way to really describe this movie, aside from, like, a man is, like, I mean, the tagline's perfect, like, the worst part about Jacob Singer's nightmares are that he's not asleep. This movie isn't, like, it, it, it's not a very straightforward movie, and I, I think that kind of... It lends itself, and again, I don't mean to to to, to set myself on this pedestal, but I, I I really do think that lends itself to being somewhat unapproachable to like casual horror fans, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's something that sh- more people should watch, um, and I think it's it, you. I think you, you're probably right that it's 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 uh, it's not easily consumable uh, as a kind of product, and it shouldn't be. Because there are certain horrors which are not just like, oh, there's a monster lurking under your bed. There's a kind of more profound horror, which is like, maybe existence is terrible <laughs> and there's yeah. nothing you and there's nothing you can do about it i mean i feel like every every episode we do i, I feel like have you done anything horror related recently besides living yeah, yeah before, besides existing right yeah. we live in we live in the trump horror universe yeah. now <laughs> other than capitalism has anything horrible happened yeah. in your life recently yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh i i also i i do think though the more i think about it and uh, we had kind of gotten this feeling when we watched the special features, but you reading about the auth, the writer of the screenplay, I, I think this is one of those movies where the director is working against the screenplay. Absolutely. In the, you know, in the sense that he's the, the writing, edit as well, the edit, the editing on it as well. Yeah. yeah. Because what it's doing is it's taking away again. I, I do think there is something deeply theological slash spiritual happening in the movie. Yes. I'm all on board for that. But the anxieties of the movie, the things it gets into your heart about are not really about, Oh my God, what happens when I die? Like that's not really, it is because that's what the, is happening to him. But all my fears are about, the government and what's real and who can I trust and like if my 
baby died, would I continue on? Like, fuck, being becoming a mailman is actually optimistic for what would happen to me if my baby passed away. <laughs> like, that's actually a best case scenario. And you know what I mean? Like, I just, I, I, in other words, like, I, I think it plays off a lot of other anxieties. And it, and just reading about the the original screenplay, it seemed like that played off more of a traditional like. Oh my gosh! There's demons and angels and what you know yeah, what I mean. Like I, I it's was, a little bit more straight up I, uh, yeah. a traditional view of of what our anxieties. I, would I, be I was going to say I I've got a feeling that the original screenplay for this was far more linear than the finished product. Um, just because, uh, yeah, I it, I mean the, the, this this screenplay seemed to be um, I don't know, not boring and by the book, but it wasn't as it wasn't nearly as uh, all encompassing to the uh you know anxiety of everyday life that the finished product ended up being i feel like we could say a lot more about this but i want to uh not take up our whole night we should move on to the next real, movie real quick i just want to say did you know that this movie was also influenced by the looks of the brothers quay no yeah that's terrifying to me yeah that's the scariest shit i can imagine yeah brothers quay yeah i don't like that <laughs> okay so any other final thoughts i mean obviously if you are someone who listened to this and you've never seen Jacob's Ladder, uh, we didn't ruin it for you. Like, it's still going to fucking get to you, even though we told you that he's dead. Um, that doesn't really make it any any less uh, compelling to watch. And if you just haven't seen it in a while, I think it's worth a revisit. Like, it, it really has stuff there to think about and to connect with. And, you know, I knew what was happening. I, I just watched it recently. And there's just certain moments where I'm still like, nope, yep, that makes me uncomfortable. Like, yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. It, it, uh, again, there's been no horror movie I've ever seen where every single fucking second of this movie i felt unsafe watching it like literally every second i was like there is horror beyond description waiting around the corner which is rare and also real uh so yeah we're gonna take a quick break and when we get back we're gonna talk about 2015's also psychological thriller they look like people we'll be right back you are a mountain you are a hundred miles high. All that your enemies place in your way. Betrayal, lies, poison. You devour and become stronger. You are invincible. Those that try to hurt you will turn silent and will bow down. But what can people do to hurt a mountain? This is Jeffrey Combs, you know, reanimator from beyond, etc. You're listening to Horror Business. And we are back to talk about 2015's They Look Like People, released on July 25th, 2015, written and directed by Perry Blackshear, who also shot, edited, and produced the film. I like that. The yeah. man who fucking grabbed control. Many by talents. Many talents. Starring um, Evan, Evan Dumachel. Doesn't matter. Uh, McLeod Andrews. And Margaret Ying Drake. This movie looks like it had a budget of like $5,000. And I'm totally cool with that. Yeah, they I don't. I don't friends. mean. I don't mean that as a knock at all. Yeah, it's like the Blair Witch, only super effective. Um, 
what did you guys think about this movie? Do you want to talk a little bit about generally what it's about? No. I want to know what you guys think about it. Okay. <laughs> John, what do you think? Uh, I think this is a really, really depressing film. Um, I think it's I think it's a film sort of about alienation in lots of ways. Um and without without getting maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a kind of uh, Marxist sense that this is a very alienated film. It's a film about the experience of being uh, alive and living in the city, sort of now. Um, it's uh, yeah, unre- almost unremittingly bleak until the very end, um, and it's incredibly intimate as well. You feel like it's all sort of street level, you know, it's all, it, there is no kind of spectacle here. It's, it's all just very close up to the people involved. Um, it also makes me deeply uncomfortable to be around anyone who works with acid. Um, right. Right. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's saying enough to start with. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, this is a film that's very aware of and working within its limitations. It's not trying to be more than it is. It's not trying to accomplish some great feat of whatever. It's very light on special effects. It's light on um, cast. It very much is a small film, and it takes that smallness and makes it exceedingly claustrophobic. Yes. And it plays off what it does have, which is a strong cast that can really portray a lot of emotional complexity. And it uses that... It it very effectively uses the horror of just our emotional lives as humans to play up a larger horror of alienation and, oh my God, what's going on? And what can I even know is real? And I think super effectively doesn't just focus on are there's a there's so for those of you who haven't seen it there's a character who uh is going through an experience that is could be mental health related it could be an actual <laughs> well, let's just s- give like a brief synopsis of the movie supernatural <laughs> it could be supernatural related but what's interesting is he goes to this friend for help and his friend is also detached and alienated like he doesn't think we're being invaded by demons yeah but his life is not really that much better in a, in no, a lot of ways cool. and and at a certain moment, I started to think like, fuck, like one mental health issue away from he's so close. Like they're both at a point where they could break. It's yeah. just one of them is experiencing that through a phenomena and the other one is just feeling self-destructive. It, it, it's it's so this this movie, I, I remember when um, the thing that caught my attention with this movie was just the poster design. Sure. Which I can't really describe it. Because I'm not, I don't have the word. I'm not a smart person. I can't really describe. The <laughs> no, but you know, I, mean? I don't know the, how to talk about the images. Weird, the weird. Uh, can you describe the post the way this movie looks? The poster looks. Yeah, it's a dude emerging from the dark and yelling. That's in a the way. worst description of this poster. That's I've ever literally heard. what it looks like. That's okay, so anyway, the poster and the name's very evocative. So I, I, I first watched this movie on Netflix because I have Netflix. I watched. <laughs> I, I watched it on Netflix and. I I knew from the start. Again, here is our fucking stupid spoiler alert. There's no, there's no, uh, there's there's no they in this movie. There, there's right. there's no. It, it, this movie is there's a 100 percent film about the, the 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 horror of mental illness. And as a per, I was actually talking about this today with my one coworker. As a person who has struggled with 
uh, anxiety and depression for most of my adult life. And there were certain scenes, scenes in this movie where I was watching it and I was like, that comes unclose, un, un, like very uncomfortably close to the bone. Not that I've ever had like auditory or visual hallucinations, but there have been times where like I have had anxiety so bad and panic attacks that have been so bad where I have blacked out and I have not felt in control of my body. And I think like the main, the main character is like, there's part of me that, I I think what makes this movie really scary is I think like he understands, part of him understands that this is not real. Part of him understands that this is all a manifestation of, of, of a sick mind and that he is in desperate need of help. But then there's the other part of him that's like, nah, but there really are these things that are trying out there to like infect us and you should really like start hoarding weapons in your friend's basement and doing a bunch of weird shit. And I think the struggle between those two viewpoints in this main character is what makes this movie heartbreaking ultimately um and is some of the imagery of what he's seeing like scary absolutely i i think the scene in the beginning where you could see the silhouette of his girlfriend's face like slightly starting to change i think is really effective and then you see like the pictures he's seeing and like you know the use of like the buzzing the buzzing of the flies like all of that is extremely effective filmmaking but ultimately i think the scariest thing about this is that this is a movie about a about a, about a person who um, is trapped by their by 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 a disease, uh, not of their own creation because you know it's not like he fucking consciously made this, but it, these are all manifestations of, of of his own mind, and I think I th- I think that's that's like it's been done before, you know, like we said earlier, arguably you could say that Jacob's Ladder is about that, but this movie is like I don't know why, but particularly effective at at, at getting that 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 terror across. What I really, what I really sort of admire about the script and the way that it's put together, and one of the things I think Perry Blackshear has done a really good job of has been, because uh, to be incredibly sympathetic, compassionate towards people who might be struggling with mental health problems, right? Because too often in horror, it's kind of like an easy crutch to make somebody right. seem scary. Yeah, it's like, oh, a crazy person is a villain. They're, they're dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're the villain. Why? Because they're crazy and they're bad. Why? Because they're crazy. And what's what's really unnerving and what's really what really does cut close to the bone is this idea of like he's not in any sense bad, uh, and he has people who genuinely seem to care about him. Um, but that is maybe not enough to to sort of make everything okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's sort of the the. It's a different kind of horror, and I think only a few other movies have tried to get at it. The point where the person who was most likely to enact violence is your most sympathetic character, and you can actually understand where they're coming from, and all you can do is hope they will not do this thing, that they will not be this person, but chances are they're going to. Chances are they're going to make this decision and. It's like so anxiety inducing. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I agree with Justin. The moments where he is experiencing something are very effective and scary. And at times so effective and scary that I was like, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a movie about a thing that's actually happening. But by the time we get to the crescendo, uh, I, I really do feel like, okay, I know what this is about. This is about someone who's struggling with mental illness. That didn't make it any less anxiety inducing. You're still like, fuck, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? I think the scariest part of this movie is there's a scene towards the end when both the main characters are in the the one guy's kitchen and 
the the the, the gentleman who was su- suffering from these delusions has like an axe and he's like talking about these delusions he has and he has this like this weight of certainty in his voice that is so unsettling and the other character is like you could tell he's like trapped in it's what makes not to, to harken back to you know earlier in the intro talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's what makes the hitchhiker scene in Texas Chainsaw so fucking frightening because you're trapped in a small space with someone that you don't know what they're gonna do. And that that scene where his friend is just like they're out there, they're infecting everyone that's good, and he's not really saying anything that's like overwhelmingly threatening. But his his stance, I mean, the fact he's holding an axe, everything about that is just like. It's like being in a cage with an animal. You don't know what they're going to do. Like they could just bolt one way and it's it, it's it's so frightening that it's just a it's just it's just a sick person is what you're dealing with. It, it, it is what makes it like the real terror of this film is that you're just dealing with a sick person who doesn't know what's real and what's not. And um that's far more frightening than 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 fucking demons and and whatnot. One of the things that I that really sort of got me was uh, in that scene where it's Wyatt who goes on this long, kind of disturbing, violent sort of rant about these things which are coming, and Christian gets on board, and then the next morning Christian's just in his kitchen making breakfast, and it's never mentioned. Right. And, and you go, that that isn't... That's not avoiding the topic. That's that's the defense mechanism because you don't want to say anything because it might it might be the thing that triggers everything else to come crashing down. It might literally get you killed. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what else can you do but make pancakes? Now, the- cuz at least at least that is safe, right? Even if nothing else is safe, at least that's okay. Now, I there was something I wanted to ask both of you about, and this is from comments by other people. This isn't my idea, but I wanted to get your take on it. Obviously, the film is about, primarily at least, about mental illness. Okay. Like this is this guy's dealing with his mental illness, and you know the compassion that his friend has, but also the danger there, and the and I think to a larger extent about the reality that it's not like his friend is like a super stable dude either. He's got his own shit. He's dealing with stuff the whole movie. He's trying to own. kill himself. At the yeah, exactly. Like he's not, he's not in the, he's not in a, a great place either. Right. But someone suggested, and I wanted to get your take on it. To what extent do you think this film could be seen as being about, um, the fear of religious people? That there are all these people across the planet who believe things that seem, as certain and possibly as dangerous as our man here, even though they might not necessarily have acid in the basement ready to go. Some of them do. So like, to what extent is that part of at least an underlying anxiety of this film? Um, I don't know. I think that's a little too specific. Yeah. Right? I, I kind of thought that too, but I, I just wanted to take it seriously as an idea. I, I yeah, think- to- I, and I sort of understand it up to a point, but I think what's more compelling is to like because as you say, Christian, the the his Wyatt's friend, you know, he makes mention of a past suicide attempt. He's someone else who's kind of withdrawn, isolated, alienated. Listens to these sort of self help mantras as a way of kind of. To be honest, I think it's about. It's something more fundamental than just religious belief. I think it's about what what is it like to be alive now, 
Right. You know, we're 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 so isolated from one another. You know what Marx would call ein Fremdung, this kind of alienation that we all have to endure. That even the people that you've known for years that maybe you were friends with and you count on can turn up on your doorstep and suddenly have become someone completely different. I, I, I think the, I, I think the analogy of it being about Christianity is, I, I, I think that draws a little too heavily on the nature of why it's uh, delusions that it's demons. I, I don't, I don't think it's, I mean, you could, if you were to say, uh, is it, is it about extremism? I could be like, okay, yeah, because, uh, I forget who said it, but I fear those who believe they have God on their side. It's some some band from the early two thousands said that, but I I, I I I see that. But I mean, uh, I don't think it's necessarily really speaks about religious people being a danger to others. Again, I I, re- I really think that's drawing too heavily on the nature of his delusions. Um, but on the topic of like alienation, I I do think it's I do think it's telling that the quote unquote healthy character in this movie is a is is a man who. Um, lives in the center of the one of the largest cities on the planet, and in his daily commute, he completely cuts himself off from everyone as he comes in contact with in favor of some weird obsession he has with an ex-girlfriend, as, as it's revealed that she's the voice on these tapes, that he's clinging to this uh, the, 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 this weird obsession with her, and it's sort of like, you know, isolated him from literally everyone else in his life. I mean, it's revealed, right, when he gets fired, that he has no friends at work. Like, no, everyone the, fucking the hates him. The only person he has a relationship with is his boss who yeah. he is trying to fuck like yeah. that's and that like his need for her is also about his loneliness that like yes he's attracted to her he wants a relationship with her but he's just desperate for a connection so it feels like to me at least in the movie that he's conflating both the romance and his like sadness that like yes he legitimately is interested in her but at this point he probably just needs a dog like i i just he's so utterly alone and of course then he never i mean here's the thing Friend, so uh, that's Christian. Wyatt is the one who's dealing with the... Wyatt is the the main character. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. Wyatt is clearly fucked up from moment one. Like, I personally yeah. feel like part of what's going on here is Christian is actually off-put and unsure about Wyatt, but... Here's someone to spend time with who will talk to him and be in his house. Like, I, he, I think his yeah, need yeah. is part of their relationship. When it, when, it, when it comes to loneliness, I don't think I think Wyatt is the one who's truly lonely. I, I do think the nature of this illness has 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 separated him from from the rest of the world, and he he doesn't know how to deal with that. Christian just misses his ex girlfriend. That's not the downplay of the nature of, of 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 the source of his. Anxiety. But he has no other connections. We see no other relationship. I the whole do. Movie. I think that's the, of his own creation. I think he's so hung up because every. Everything comes from this fucking because his girl, his his ex girlfriend left him. He talks about it a lot at the beginning. You know, this whole idea of him dominating everything comes from his desire to overpower and to to impress her, and that that's what's alienated everyone else in the office. Like you, like there is, it's revealed that like when he gets fired, they leave a fucking note on his computer, like good job dominating everyone asshole which like, just goes to show that if you want to get ahead at work don't go around reading Nietzsche or Ayn Rand <laughs> because all of your co-workers will hate you you're just going to become an insufferable asshole right which is what's happened to him right right he's he's encountered this sort of emotional trauma and instead of actually thinking about how do you kind of build connection with somebody he's he's figured out that the, his solution is to become more kind of self-involved. Right. And, and, that yet, d- and that does turn you into an asshole. And yet, 
And yet, when they go out on the date, and the moment of, the moment of truth comes, he can't even kiss her. Why? Because he's a fucking beta, and he's been cucked by life. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bring that shit up in here. <laughs> I'm just, but okay. Serious note. But you see what I mean, though? It's all a fucking act. Because right. when, when the moment, when it comes down to it, she was giving him signals to kiss her, and he couldn't even muster up the stuff to do. Well, it. but I think also she's the most attracted to him when he's vulnerable, and he's trying to not be like everything about his relation to her, and apparently to all of his coworkers as well, is about hiding vulnerability. It's about not being a real human, and the yeah. times at which and she's connected to him is, is when, when you he see, is re, when you see, you know, when they're kind of connected is when he's authentic, right? Right. When yeah, you when get rid of that asshole, domineering, self-help mantra quoting douche that nobody wants to be near, then when he actually, when you strip that away, there's probably the potential to make a connection well, there. When he's around Wyatt, and he, when when they're having, when they're getting a little bit drunk, and they're just hanging out, and he like sort of like drops the act, he's a really likable guy. When they're just like hanging out, sitting in the house, and they're talking about the stupid shit they used to do when they were kids, I, is it is it a little saccharine? Is it a little trite? Yes, but I do think that like it it does it does tell the story of a, of a person who, under all this fucking bravado alpha male bullshit. Is actually like a decent, likable guy who just doesn't know how to handle the the, the heartache of of uh, of this this girl, what whatever her name is that 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 left him. Can we talk about the ending? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, go for it. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> uh, if I could start and say that when I, if, oh, man, um, so like I said, I do think the scariest part is the scene where there, there, there's the confrontation in the kitchen. But that ending, the fucking tension that in in that scene is like one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen in a film. Because like again, I was certain it was all in his head. But I didn't know if he was going to fucking dump the acid on his friend's head and actually kill a human being. There's this weird tension. And, like, e- even under the weird imagery of the bag-shifting shape and the fucking voice talking to him and all this, like, weird shit that, he, that may or may not actually be going on, at the end of it, you're still, like, he still might kill his fucking best friend. And that's so scary. And on top of that... I'm not entirely convinced. Like, I don't necessarily believe that just because they had this breakthrough and he's like, yeah, I, you know, how uh, Christian is like, you know, I trust you, Wyatt, and I know you're not going to do anything. I don't necessarily think that cures Wyatt. Like, I, I, I don't, like, we don't know what Wyatt said to, uh, what's her face at the fucking, when they're sitting in there and she had, there's that weird moment where he hallucinates her eyes rolling back and all that. Like, we don't know how that fucking conversation ended. We don't know what he did to her. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, I don't know if this ending is, it's definitely like an optimistic ending. It's a touching ending. It's a very, you know, I'm glad that they had this moment, but I'm not entirely sure that, like, I don't think Wyatt's problems just went away. You know, like, I've had lots of breakthroughs on the subject of anxiety, but I still fucking freak out. And I think people are tracking my every movement sometimes when I'm driving home from from the grocery store. Like, just me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, it's that, that ending was. It was effective in a lot of ways because it was a moving ending and it was also terrifying. And I, I don't think many movies accomplished that um, as well as this movie did. One of the things I really liked about the the ending is that it kind of literalizes in a really visceral and uncomfortable way the degree to which human connection, friendship, actually actually getting beyond the kind of limitations of ourself and uh, meeting another person bit of consciousness is an incredibly risky business yes like because normally like film friendships are everything's fine it's good friendship has healed everything but this is this is like 
trusting another person and genuinely doing it involves literally putting your body on the line. Like, are you... That's... To me, that's the thing that kind of really sticks with me about the ending. That, like, trying to be a friend, trying to have a kind of genuine, real, authentic connection is so dangerous. It's been made into something that is so dangerous. Um, and is is a risk that is actually worth taking. Well, Liam, you pointed out that you actually think that Christian was ready to die. Like, literally, he was ready. Yeah, I mean, I, I am slightly think I uh, So I have a few responses. As an audience member, I love the ending in the sense that that's what I want to have happen. Like, that's the ending I want. I am slightly worried by it in a few ways one of which is i kind of think that christian wanted to die i'm i suspect that christian's choice at the end is um uh is him submitting to something that is finally something for him to do that's worthwhile like that he's saying like nothing really is working out for me i haven't I don't have anyone to give myself to, and here's this friend who's in need, and if he has to murder me, you know what? There's not much for me anyway. Like they, that I, I don't think he's hoping to die, but I think he's more than willing at this point that actually if, if this kills him, that's better than some of the other options going on in his life right now. And so I, and the reason that worries me is that, um, there's a small part of me that is always skeptical of, uh, that's not true. I very much enjoy sacrifice narratives, but I know in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, this is some crypto Christian bullshit. So there's a part of me that's kind of like, oh, he's going to sacrifice himself for his friend. It's like, it's, like, it's like Jacob and Isaac. He's sacrificing himself for his friend. And, <laughs> and then there's some part of my brain that goes, which is why his friend should kill him. You know what I mean? Like that, like, yes, I prefer the idea that like, I, I, I don't be wrong. I'm not saying it's completely hopeful. We don't know what's going to happen to Wyatt. Wyatt could leave this place Wyatt, and be just as, just as sick. Yeah. Literally the, the moment the camera turned off, he could have just fucking dumped ass. But the that. solution is still, if I submit, I will create some sort of change in what feels like an apocalyptic situation. And I love that, actually. There's something about that that really appeals to me. But there's another part of me that goes, that could be a really dangerous idea. That yeah, like, I mean, that he could have accomplished something good in this guy's life by not submitting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an admission that his kind of, I'm going to dominate, I am the mountain, I am the fire rhetoric is all, is all bullshit. Right. It's nonsensical fucking jargon. Yeah. Right. And so, and so I, 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 I don't say any of that to say I don't like the movie. I like the movie a lot, but I, there's some, there's a small part of me. There's a small cynical part of me that's like, he should just kill him and that should be the movie. <laughs> but, but. As an audience member, I freely admit that if that had actually happened, I'd be like, this fucking movie, what a cynical piece <laughs> of shit this movie is. This is too much. And, and, but I, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm right about that, but uh, whatever. It doesn't matter. I like the movie. I like the ending. There was a brief moment where I did think like, eh, he might just kill him. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but I like that. And I do like that it doesn't have some sort of fucking denouement, whatever thing where it's like, and now look, here's Wyatt going to see his psychologist. Like, I like that it just builds to a crescendo because I don't need to know. I don't need the after school special part. I just need to know how this tension ends. I also like, and the, I like that. I also like the fact that this movie, unlike Take Shelter, 
Uh, you always want to come for take shelter. Always, I'm, not, I'm not coming for take shelter. I I I I, I like the fact that this movie, um, you know, because I think your co-host on Cinepunks, Josh Alvarez, Josh the Man Alvarez, made a very good point about take shelter. I do like the fact that this movie didn't. Um, it didn't do some like not to say that the twist and take shelter was a fucking cheap was it was it was a, a, a cheap way of ending a movie, but like this movie very easily could have they could have taken the cheap way out. Like movies have done shit like that before, and I'm really glad that they that they that they didn't. I think if the movie was written differently, the the stuff being real is not a cheap way out to me. I'm actually fine with it. In this movie, it wouldn't have worked because it was so clear to me that it wasn't real, that it would have been like a total 180 to make it real. And I didn't feel that way about Take Shelter, and that's what Josh felt about. That Josh felt Take Shelter, it was never even close to being real until the end. And then he's like, great, now a bunch of schizophrenic people I work with are going to tell me that their delusions are real because of this movie. Yeah, to be to be fair, Josh's dislike of that movie is rooted in far more practical grounds than yeah. It's from yeah. actually working with folks who want to beat him up because they say that he is working for the CIA. Yeah, which he might be. We don't know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I really like this. I really liked it a lot, and I think it's it's doing some really interesting things. It's clearly been made on literally no money, um, and it's just been made by a guy with a good idea and a few friends that he wanted to hang out with. Um, but I actually think there's some really, yeah, kind of profound things once you start picking away at a few of the kind of narrative layers that we've got here. Right. Man. So uh, I, I do want to say, I do think, though, that these movies, if we pull back far enough to say that these are both movies in which someone is showing kind of the feelings of alienation and horror in our lives. I think obviously Jacob's ladder has a bigger budget and more of an ability to show the New York is just such a good partner. This is, if you want to show the horror of New York or, or horror of modern life, New York is a great backdrop, but it's just different in Jacob's ladder. Whereas in this movie, what we see is a populated city in which people have no relationships, which is, also very ac- and accurate, they're also they're you know? also they're also in a very uh, like Jacob's Ladder takes place in uh, mid seventies Brooklyn I think yeah yeah sure this right. movie takes place in like Williamsburg sure you know what I mean like I, I think this movie even 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 highlights that sense of alienation even more because they're like look how great things are and these people are still utterly fucking lonely yeah there's like no visible poverty in the film but these people are completely unhappy yeah. Well, I mean, most of them are. Well, that's true. The what's her name seems all right. And her friend, basically yeah. the two dudes. The two dudes are very. The unhappy. two dudes are unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry about that. But I, <laughs> but I, but I do think, like as I said before, as I sort of sort of hinted at the beginning, I do think they're interesting responses because Jacob's Ladder sort of ends with this supernatural thing, which almost is at odds with itself in some ways. And then this movie, it's it's very much about relationship that like. Once they form this relationship, this like seemingly insurmountable delusion is at least in that moment taken care of. I, I, mean, I don't know that Wyatt's life gets better, but at least he didn't burn his friend with that. Meanwhile, I've destroyed relationship after relationship with my own fucking weirdness. Uh, that's fine. I, it, I mean, it's also true. I mean, when I'm not on meds, I'm completely unbearable to be around. But yeah, I mean, this that's is, just this, life. This is the, the way that the two handle the kind of um, the problems of of existence, you know, 
is that the, the uh, what I really like is that both both Christian and Wyatt are in kind of different ways, sort of profound dealing with some really profound damage that they've both got, um, and they persist. You know, they stay with each other, which is really all that there is, right? You you just you ke- you keep on going, and if there's someone else who's nearby who's going to keep on going too, then they're the person that you stick around with. And you know it may not be much, but there is a degree of there is a degree of of hope there, right? I, to to be fair, not to be cynical, um, but C- Christians trust and all that very easily. Why it could just glom that on the his, the narrative of of his of his delusions? Oh I mean, yeah, the, totally. The, vo- the voice on the phone keeps saying him like he is a good person. He is he is you know he is he is the most vulnerable. And uh, again, I, I, at the risk of uh, at the risk of casting a cloud over this 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 somewhat bright interpretation of the movie it's like um we don't know what happened to Wyatt's girlfriend at the beginning of the movie like he could have fucking killed her and been like i gotta get out of here i mean like that that that's that's a very real possibility and um i just uh, I, I don't know i just and of course as you say we don't know what happens when it cuts to black exactly yeah we don't we don't know if this if if he if he's gonna just work that into his uh, in, increasingly sick mind. Uh, yeah, but I don't think that matters. I mean, uh, the, no, it, you it totally doesn't matter. You don't know what like, happens when it, any movie cuts to black. But uh, yes, we do. What? What do you mean? I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> you thought you were gonna have some smart thing to say, and then you couldn't come up with something. I've seen sequels. I know what happens. You know what I mean. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we should. This has been really great, but we should probably wrap up a little bit yeah. here. Uh, John. Tell us about like where people can find some of your stuff, and how uh, they can how they, how how they can and how they can see see what what Lit Crick Guy is about. Uh, you can if you if you uh, enjoy this kind of thing, you can follow me on Twitter at the Lit Crick Guy, uh, where I talk about politics and horror and gothic studies and what it's like to be an academic. I also do uh, hashtag Theory Time, which is where I will. That's my favorite, by the way. Uh, do a little close reading of some uh, theorists' work, um, and we'll try and sort of break it down in a really accessible way. I write essays over on Patreon, which I usually post. Um, I will eventually make all of them public, but I usually post some exclusive stuff for people who chip in a dollar a month or so. And um, yeah, uh, you can. I am. I'm just an extremely online academic. I'm always around. <laughs> Oh, I'm supposed to ask you. Uh, one of the guys who has a podcast on our on our network, our friend John Wren, who is a big um, he's a big soccer person. He told me to tell you what color Manchester is. What color is Manchester? Uh, uh, what color is my Manchester? Yeah, it, my Manchester is very much red. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, he said if he says anything other than blue, kick him out. And I was like. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but John is such a fucking poser. Wow. I mean, just whatever, whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're right. So, um, okay, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll put this stuff up in the show notes. Um, we'll hype, we'll put it up on Twitter and everything like that. But we have to say thank you. Thank you for. That's what I was getting at. Okay, go there, do it. <laughs> thank you well, so much for doing this. Thank you thank so you much so for, coming much on for here. having me on. It, it was, it's it was been, awesome. It's been a blast. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you, I mean, you're like way ahead of us in the, it's like one in the morning over there, isn't it? It is twenty five to two, and I have just finished my beer. Holy shit! Uh, you should go to bed. <laughs> that, is, that is my plan. That is my plan. <laughs> but thank you so much for for staying up to do this, and like 
um, for for being willing to talk to us about this stuff. And honestly, it, if you're listening to this and you don't follow Liquid Guy, you definitely should. Um, I find the theory time stuff so fucking helpful. You've covered at least three people that I supposedly read in grad school, but I didn't actually fucking understand what I was reading. <laughs> and just in the little threads on Twitter, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, uh, which three? Can I ask? Uh, okay. Now you're <laughs> one of them. No, one of them was a Gombin. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, what was the other one? Fuck, 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 fuck. I think it was a Gombin, and then it wasn't. In total, but there was a specific like Deleuze related thing that I didn't understand, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, and then though the third one was actually not someone I read, but someone I not someone, but something I was interested in. You did, didn't you? Do a Afro pessimism thread? I think. Oh yeah, I think maybe a while back. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I followed some links of that and like downloaded some books and stuff too. So. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. Oh, it was so cool. And every time we do one, I'm like, what is this? I want to know more about this. <laughs> I mean, granted. Thank you so much. Granted, now I'm going to start sending you requests. So. <laughs> yeah, man. Absolutely. Hit me off if there's stuff you want to see me talk about. That's absolutely fine. And if you have recommendations as well, please send me that. And that goes to everybody listening. Excellent. So I guess we're going to wrap it up. Again, thank you, John. Thank you so much. Um uh, and, yeah, my uh, pleasure. Anytime. Uh, also, shout out to our Patreon subscribers. I realize we haven't Fuck, really... we never talk about that anymore. We, nev- we, really, we really tell people how to get there, but we, we, we don't really say thank you. So thank you so much, anyone who, who's, who's done it to our Patreon. If you uh, submit to our Patreon, if you uh, give to our Patreon and you have uh, a specific car business-related benefit uh, that you would like, i.e. suggesting us a movie or getting a shout-out or even being a guest on the show, you should let us know. We have a number of people who give to the Patreon and who never check in to see if they get their shit. Yeah, and so I don't know if you've gotten your shit. Also, if you're listening to this, fucking email me and I will I will send you some sort of free shit. I have, we have pins. <laughs> we, have, we have fucking stickers. We, we have great pins. We'll send you free shit. So T-shirts. You, you can go to www.cinepunks.com for more episodes of this podcast and several of our other quality podcasts, including but not limited to Cinepunks. Black Sun Dispatches. Black Sun Dispatches. And Got Me a Movie and The Mandate. Small Screen Cinema. Small Screen Cinema. That's our newest adaption. Yeah. Our new adaption. Addition. Um, so, yeah. You can also find out how to donate to our Patreon, which if you do, we will be profoundly grateful for that. And remember, go on iTunes. Download, 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 download some more. Rate, review, subscribe. And fuck Chris Reject forever. Yeah. Fuck him in the face. <laughs> so, uh, until next time, stay spooky. Peace. <laughs> hey, man, thanks for doing this. Don't talk, just listen. Under the black sun, there is no hope. Only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network.